0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Lee Goodmark, who is the author of Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, A Balanced Policy Approach to Intimate Partner Violence, uh, new from University of California Press. Lee, welcome. Good to have you with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, So if you would tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and how you came to this particular book, if you would.
1: I'm a law professor at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law, where I direct the Gender Violence Clinic My students and I represent clients in all kinds of cases where gender and violence are intersecting in any way. We represent people who've been subjected to intimate partner violence, rape and sexual assault, human trafficking. Um, And I've been doing this work for about the last 25 years. I've represented people subjected to violence in various forms, in various courts, uh, in quite a few states now. Um, And so the work, the book, is really informed by my work as an attorney looking at the these systems day in and day out with, at this point, probably close to a thousand clients.
0: So so why don't we start, if you would, with a description of the status quo? How would you describe sort of the shape of current U.S. domestic violence policy? Uh, And then maybe after describing it, talk a little bit about your own evaluation about the ways in which it is and is not effective?
1: Sure. So currently, the legal system is the primary response to intimate partner violence in the United States. And as between the civil and the criminal legal systems, certainly disproportionate funding and attention is given to the criminal legal system. So for example, if you look at the Violence Against Women Act, there's been a bit of a a of a controversy in the last few days, for example, about the Trump administration supposedly changing the definition of domestic violence. In fact, the domestic violence definition has been the same under the Violence Against Women Act since 1994. It's been misdemeanor or felony violence perpetrated against people having certain kinds of relationships. That hasn't changed at all, and that's really an indication of the predominant focus on the criminal legal system. Currently, when people experience intimate partner violence, what they're told to do is call 911. And when they do that, that can set into motion a chain of events involving police intervention, the bringing of charges, prosecutors working on cases, um, all of all of this moving, of course, towards conviction and incarceration And while domestic violence is still a relatively underreported crime, only about 46% of people report, those who do report disproportionately go through this criminal legal system. That's not to say that there aren't both civil legal resources available through, for example, domestic violence protective orders and other kinds of services, including shelter services and counseling services. But if you look at the allocations of funding in the Violence Against Women Act, what you see is that in its original iteration in 1994, about 62% of the funding went to the criminal legal system, about 38% to social services. In the last reauthorization in 2013, that ratio had shifted to 85 percent to the criminal legal system and 15 percent to social services. And while there are other pots of money available to do work with uh, people who've been subjected to abuse, the Violence Against Women Act is really the signature federal legislation on intimate partner violence in the United States. And that it has this criminalization focus is no—it's not a misunderstanding. It's not a. a um, a coincidence the violence against women act was part of the omnibus federal crime act in 1994 the clinton crime bill and its primary author joe biden in the uh, advocacy around that act made it very clear that Democrats were staking out a position as the party of law and order, that Democrats were putting 100,000 new cops on the streets, that Democrats were hiring new prosecutors, and that Democrats were taking violence against women seriously. And what they meant by that was criminalizing intimate partner violence. My book critiques that choice, and it suggests that, in fact, criminalization hasn't been nearly as effective as one might have hoped. Uh, We can ask whether, in fact, it is having an appreciable impact on rates of domestic violence at all. And even if it is having an appreciable impact, there are serious questions about whether the consequences of criminalization are too high, uh, whether the costs are too high to justify continuing to rely disproportionately on criminalization as our primary response.
0: Can you can you talk a little bit about, when you, when you talk about sort of the, the cost being too, too high, can you unpack that a little bit for us and tell us what you mean?
1: Sure. So I think there are a number of things to look at. So first, I think it's important, though, to say there are benefits to criminalization, right? Criminalization stops a violent incident in the moment. It helps people to achieve separation if that's what they want. And it's certainly made resources available, as I've noted. Um, in addition, criminalization gives the state's imprimatur behind the idea that intimate partner violence is wrong is something we can't condone. But criminalization also reflects what Jonathan Simon has called our tendency to govern through crime. The idea that we can take any social problem in the United States, make it a crime, and therefore have it go away. Um, And as Angela Davis had said, incarceration is like magic, it makes our problems seem to disappear. So this the turn to criminalization is part of that overall turn towards the criminal legal system as the primary responder to social problems in the United States. I think that's a cost. There are very real costs to people who've been subjected to abuse. So, for example, one of the prime, primary policies of criminalization has been mandatory arrest. Mandatory arrest requires police to make an arrest any time that they come to the scene of a domestic violence crime and have probable cause to do so. It's very much a shift from the way that police approached domestic violence in the 1960s and 1970s when the training manuals of the time told them that if they came to a scene of a domestic violence incident, they should tell the guy, and it was always the guy then, to take a walk around the block until he cooled down, but that they shouldn't make an arrest. Mandatory arrest really shifted uh, the way that police addressed intimate partner violence. And after states adopted mandatory arrest laws, again, with the impetus of the Violence Against Women Act, which in its first iteration made the adoption of mandatory arrest laws a requirement of receiving grant funding, rates of arrests predictably went up. And they went up more than uh, anyone for women and for women subjected to abuse. And of course, there's been a tremendous amount of social science research as to why this is. And what that research tells us is that there was no finding that women had suddenly become more violent or that the laws were responding to an uptick in women's violence. The existence of the laws made police more likely to arrest women. Um, They arrested women who were defending themselves. They arrested women in what are called dual arrests, where police come to the scene of an incident, look at both parties and say, well, we don't know what happened. We're just going to bring you both in. Um, Lots of kinds of situations where women were being arrested. And so that's, a very real harm of criminalization. Criminalization has harmed people of color. The same racism that infests the rest of the criminal legal system is found in the criminalization of intimate partner violence. And so if you look at, for example, a study out of Milwaukee County of who got prosecuted for domestic violence crimes, while 24% of the population was African-American, 66% of the defendants in intimate partner violence cases were African-American. Huge disproportionality. You see the same kind of disproportionality in the the enforcement of criminal orders of protection, which are issued by criminal courts in those cases. Um, So real concerns about those issues. And it's important to note that there's both an under and an over enforcement problem when we're talking about communities of color, that communities of color are disproportionately affected by intimate partner violence criminalization, but that they also don't get adequate responses. And that's a kind of a complexity um, that I go into a bit in the book. There is, of course, social stigma that goes along with criminalization. And there's research that suggests that shaming people may not be the best way to keep them from being violent in the future. So that's a cost of criminalization. And finally, there are a host of collateral consequences that come with criminalization, things like restrictions on voting, public housing, and education, all of which may, in fact, contribute to intimate partner violence. So for example, if you think about employment, after incarceration or after any brush with the criminal legal system that, lead, that ends in conviction, it's significantly more difficult to find employment, but under and unemployed men are much more likely to perpetrate domestic violence. So the interventions that we're advocating may have the effect of exacerbating some of the conditions that lead to that violence in the first place.
0: You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network. We are speaking with Lee Goodmark about her new book, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence. So if um, we've got all of these problems as you articulate them by treating domestic violence and interpersonal violence as a criminal justice problem... Uh, You suggest that there are other ways in which we might define the problem and how to think about it. You talk about it as an economics problem, a public health problem, a community problem, and a human rights problem. I wonder if we can simply just take each of those in turn briefly and and walk our listeners through uh, how uh, we might change the way that we think of the nature of the problem and what that gains us in terms of improving the well-being of people who are subject to such violence.
1: Absolutely. Intimate partner violence uh, is unbelievably expensive for the United States economy. It costs the U.S. economy about uh, as much as $67 billion annually. Women are losing as much as $18 million annually in earnings as a result of intimate partner violence. And you see these effects as early as adolescence. So teen dating violence can have later impacts on a woman's ability to earn. Women subjected to teen dating violence earn as much as $3,900 less than those who did not experience violence, and they never make that up over time. Healthcare costs for women who've been subjected to abuse are higher. Women who seek civil legal assistance also lose income in the year after that they seek that assistance. They don't ever recoup that loss. Intimate partner violence costs employers about $5.8 billion annually in healthcare and lost productivity. So the economic costs to the economy are significant. Um, And although the anti violence movement has made a point always of saying that domestic violence happens to everyone, that it happens regardless of your race or your socioeconomic status or other kinds of identifying factors, the research shows pretty clearly that women who are impoverished experience domestic violence at much higher rates than other women, and that those impacts are felt much more acutely. So about two-thirds of low-income women report having been subjected to abuse, and the lower the income, the more likely a woman is to experience intimate partner violence. That manifests in a variety of different ways. So, some of it is physical abuse, some of it is emotional abuse, but almost every woman who's experienced those things has also reported economic abuse, behaviors that control a woman's ability to acquire, to use, and to maintain economic resources. There's an economic dimension, as I've already mentioned, to men's experience of perpetration as well. Men with poor work history uh, are more likely to commit intimate partner violence. Male unemployment may be the single most important factor, as I've said, um, around the Commission of Intimate Partner Violence. So then what would we do with that? Um, The anti-violence movement has done some work in financial literacy, looking at teaching women basic financial skills, including financial planning and managing cash flow. And while those programs are generally successful in improving women's basic financial literacy, they don't change the fundamental dynamics of intimate partner violence. They don't give women power in their relationships in ways that might help them to avoid violent relationships in the future. And so one of the things that I talk about a lot is putting real economic power into women's hands and how we might do that through cash transfer, through microfinance, through work, um, the variety of different kinds of things we can do to think about really empowering women economically and changes to the law that we might make around taxes and around bankruptcy um, that would alleviate some of the side effects of uh, economic abuse so that women aren't held responsible, for example, for debt that's accrued in their names without their consent. We also, though, need to look at men, and that's something that the anti-violence movement has traditionally been a little bit reluctant to do. In the zero-sum game of funding, money that is taken away from programs for women to give to men is money that is obviously no longer available to those women. But if we believe that men are disproportionately committing intimate partner violence, which I do believe, um, it seems to me to make sense to do things that will stop that. And so we need to look at work for men. Um, And one way way to do that is to raise the minimum wage. So a 2016 report by the White House Council of Economic Advisors found that raising the minimum wage to just $12 an hour by the year 2020 could significantly reduce criminal activity. Among that, we have to think intimate partner violence. We could also look at programs that Ta- tackle together the issues of work and intimate partner violence, explore the ways in which masculinity is defined through work, as well as through the use of violence, and takes, take some of those stressors off the table so that when men are working, they're able to assert masculinity in other more positive kinds of ways. In terms of public health, it's undeniable that intimate partner violence is a huge health issue for the United States. Intimate partners are responsible for over half of the femicides in the United States, and intimate partner violence is responsible for about a half a million visits to emergency rooms annually. But public health isn't about addressing the outcomes. It's about prevention. And I think prevention is a place where we need to put serious resources, there are lots of different ways to do this. We can look at working with men. Um, And again, the effectiveness of current existing abuser intervention programs is mixed, but there are programs that are doing really interesting work around intervening with men and bringing community to bear to help them both take accountability for the violence that they've done and find resources and supports out in the community we need to look at uh, children's exposure to adverse childhood experiences. The ACEs studies that were done by Kaiser Permanente show that kids who are having multiple ACEs or adverse childhood experiences are much more likely to both perpetrate or be victims of intimate partner violence. So a child's own victimization or exposure to a mother's abuse creates twice the risk for uh, perpetration. And the more adverse childhood experiences you have, the greater the likelihood. So looking at parenting programs, looking at nurse family partnerships during pregnancy that help to address issues of violence in the home, thinking about home visitation programs or fatherhood programs that look at men's capacity to parent may help us to avoid some of these adverse childhood experiences. And there are interesting programs that are looking at the intersections of, maltreatment and intimate partner violence, substance abuse and intimate partner violence that could do some of this work. We need to be intervening with adolescents. There are great programs out there that are doing this work, helping adolescents see what healthy relationships look like and giving them the capacity to have conversations about those relationships and to intervene uh, when their friends are involved in unhealthy relationships. So programs like Coaching Boys Into Men, um, which relies on the strong relationships that boys have with men in their lives to do some of this work. Uh, School-based programs like Safe Dates and The Fourth R have great research behind them. And then population-level interventions are, of course, essential. The no-brainer intervention is around guns. Uh, Guns have been involved in about half of the intimate partner homicides. You're five times more likely to be killed if your partner has a gun. And so robust uh, implementation of current laws, removing firearms from those who pose a danger, the increasing uh, adoption of gun violence restraining orders are going to be very important. The thing we talk about less, but I think we should talk about more, is alcohol. Uh, People are 11 times more likely to use violence while they're drinking and while you're drinking this, the injury that you cause is more likely to be more severe. And so we need to think about the availability of alcohol, how we decrease the availability of alcohol. And there's some kind of old research about what happens, for example, when you raise taxes on alcohol and the impact that that could have on intimate partner violence. In terms of community, we've really seeded the ability to intervene um, in situations involving violence to the state. We've kind of decided that is the province of the state. It's not the province of community. But there are folks who are doing a variety of different kinds of work to empower communities to become much more involved in intimate partner violence, both in educating community, in creating services and supports for those in community, um, to provide resources for those folks who, for whatever reason, are never going to turn to state based systems. And there are folks who, you know, we talked about domestic violence is an underreported crime, only about 46% gets reported, which means that there are lots of people who are turning to family and friends and community to address these problems. Who are never coming to the attention of the state. So how do we look at communities in ways that might decrease violence? So, for example, there's interesting research around built environment or environments and the idea that gun violence decreases when old or abandoned housing stock is rehabilitated. It'd be interesting to see whether those kinds of changes have an impact on intimate partner violence as well we need to increase people's social supports. Violence decreases in neighborhoods where social ties are strong and where residents are willing to intervene. So interacting with social networks can increase the scrutiny on a couple's relationship and prompt others to step in to protect the abused partner. People have a lot of concern about the use of community because of all of the research that's been done in the last several years around the breakdown of community in the United States and the concern that communities are actually exacerbating violence rather than helping to alleviate it. But there's interesting work going on around educating communities about intimate partner violence, helping them to understand why it is so problematic, and then helping them to understand what their role can be in stopping it. Community accountability efforts ask members of communities to answer the question, what can we do to help you to live a nonviolent life and to bring community resources to bear for somebody who doesn't, for example, want to go to the state. So the greatest example, I think, of this is somebody whose partner is in law enforcement may not feel comfortable going to law enforcement to ask for help. What they might need, though, is a group of friends who are willing to stay in the house, to provide assistance, um, to be on call if something happens, to talk to the partner about the impact of their actions. And work like that is being done in nonprofits around the country, most notably in one that's since closed but called Creative Interventions that was in the Bay Area for a number of years. Circles of uh, support and accountability are being used to engage community members around an offender to say, we are the group that will hold you accountable and here are the various ways that we will check in with you. And people are talking a lot about restorative justice, particularly in the context of the Me Too movement. Restorative justice hasn't been used as much in the context of intimate partner violence, quite honestly, because of fears about its effectiveness. But in those places where it's used, people report significant amounts of satisfaction and decreased offending. And so we might think about restorative justice as a way to address these issues as well. And in the current... uh, Iteration of the Violence Against Women Act, it's pretty exciting that there is money for restorative justice and there is money to do firearms prevention work. Um, and so there are possibilities in the current VAWA in terms of moving away. Then finally, the human rights lens really situates prosecution and punishment within a wider stra- set of strategies that are designed to address intimate partner violence. And so Uh, International human rights law asks us, us to look at prevention and protection and the provision of reparations in addition to prosecution and punishment. International uh, bodies like the Inter-American Commission on, on Human Rights are taking cases involving intimate partner violence and saying to states, including the United States, you are failing to provide the sorts of things that you need to provide. And even though you have signature legislation like the Violence Against Women Act, if you're not attending to all of these other facets of human rights law, what you're doing is inadequate. And so... What I'm asking people to do is just to shift their lens and to say, if we looked at intimate partner violence as an economic problem, what kinds of policy solutions would we get? If we looked at it as a community problem, what kinds of policy solutions could we generate? That's not to say that these are the only ways that one could look at it. It's just to ask people to shift away from criminalization just for a moment, to think about all of these other possibilities, and then to come back to criminalization in those cases where it's most needed, but not for it to be the default response.
0: You have been listening to Lee Goodmark talk about her fascinating new book, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence A Balanced Policy Approach to Intimate Partner Violence, uh, new out from the University of California Press. Uh, so, Lee, what are you working on at the moment?
1: I am starting a new book. Um, there has been a tremendous amount of press around uh, women like Marissa Alexander and Cintoya Brown, who have been criminalized as a result of their own victimization. So Marissa Alexander, of course, shot a warning shot into the ceiling of her house when her abusive ex-boy, uh, ex-husband ex came to the home and began to threaten her. Cintoya Brown killed the man who she had been trafficked to as a child and We represent in my clinic a number of women who are in similar positions, who have been involved in criminal activity as a direct result of their own victimization, who have been punished for that criminal activity, and who are now seeking some kind of parole or commutation or pardon. What I want to do is look at how these cases, um, what some people call uh, under the hashtag survived and punished, how these cases came to be, how how the criminal legal system's focus on women has increased uh, tremendously over the last several years, and to start from the impact on girls of things like mandatory arrest law to look at the ways in which prosecutors are using the law to punish women who have been victimized, and looking at that all the way through the system to pardons and paroles and commutations. Uh,
0: I hope you will come back and join us and talk about that book when it <laughs> is
1: done. Uh, meanwhile, we just
0: finished talking with Lee Goodman about the the old book now, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence from University of California Press. Uh, and I hope uh, that listening to Lee talk about the Uh, I think much more productive and complicated way we can be thinking about this issue and what the implications are for public policy and the individuals subjected to it and those subjected to intimate partner violence. Uh, My folks will check out the book itself. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for talking with me.